Adopted by God. Adopted by God. The Apostle John speaks of adoption in the beginning of his gospel. And he says this. He says, but to all who received him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. God longs for us to make us to be members of his family, to adopt us in. He wants us to come in to his family. We all know someone who has gone through the adoption process in this country, and uh, it, it's not an easy process, is it? But it can certainly make a difference, a huge world of a difference to the person that's being adopted and to the parents as well, can it? It's well worth the effort. But what's this thing about being adopted by God? What is that all about? Someone might say, you know, well, are we all God's children? And, and that's true in a sense that he created us all, so we're all his children. But there's a big difference between those who believe and those who do not believe. In fact, those who do not believe are called children of wrath in the book of Ephesians, or sons of disobedience also in the book of Ephesians. But God longs for something much, much better for us. In our last discussion in the book of Galatians, we ended with the phrase that said this, If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. Remember we talked about that? Remember we said that the blessing or the promise of justification was given to Abraham's lineage, and that through Christ we too can receive that blessing of justification. Heirs according to the promise. We are pronounced righteous even though we have all this junk in our lives. Sounds like a great thing. And it is. It is a great thing. An heir. Someone in the line of the throne. In line for the benefits. In line for the blessings. But there's also a point about timing that Paul is trying to make here. I remember a few weeks ago, uh, it was Mother's Day in fact, Pastor Linda was uh, preaching, and she told the story of the prophet Samuel. Remember we here? Talked about how his mother, uh, Hannah, had been barren. She prayed in the temple and, and, and promised to dedicate her son to God if the Lord would only grant her and allow her to have a child. And Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, they eventually had a boy. Named him Samuel. Their promise of dedication was no light, fleeting promise. They took it very seriously. In fact, they actually gave up the boy to live and to train and to serve under the priest Eli. Can you imagine doing that? That's a serious dedication. That's a serious dedication. Let him give him up. Let him live in the temple with the priest, wherever he goes. Let him train. Let him learn. Samuel came and he learned under Eli when he was just a boy. He worked faithfully year after year after year, and he learned. And we're told that Eli also had sons of his own. But at the same time, we're told of much corruption within Eli's family. Now Samuel probably knew about the corruption, or at least had heard about it, but he just kept on faithfully serving God. That's a good example for us. I'm sure many of us can relate to this, can't we? We've all seen wrongdoing at our jobs, right? People stretching the rules, unjust favoritism, people moving up the ladder when it's just not fair that they should. We've all seen it. But what do we do? 
We put our heads down, we do our jobs, and we do them well. With Samuel, eventually, when the time was right, he was eventually recognized as a prophet of God. He was promoted. While the others were being judged by God for their sins. So in a way, we could say that Samuel was like an heir to the throne, waiting his turn. See that? He was like an heir to the throne, but he had to wait his turn. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Read a few verses in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Galatians chapter 4. Okay, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Stop. Now, before, as I said, we left off last time and we said that if you be in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. And now he talks a little bit more about being an heir. He says an heir before his time comes is no better off than a slave or a servant. Before his time comes. We use the example of Samuel before. He was training year after year and he saw all these things, but he still kept going. He kept faithfully going on and on. The references in the previous chapter about the law being in effect up until the time of Christ. It talks about the law being a teacher. The people, it, the, the people were made to realize the things they were doing wrong. Pastor Darrell Dash says this about the law. He says the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, contempt of God death and hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. The law makes people realize that they can't live up to it and therefore need a Savior. That's the teacher. That's the law serving as a schoolmaster, as a teacher. In the, in the days there, they, they would have, when there was a, uh, an heir to the throne, when the person was young, they would have a teacher, they would follow them around, and they would guide them. Show them what's right and wrong. Show them how to do it. People were slaves unto the law. They were bound up by what it said, and they had to try to live up to it. But of course, nobody did. Look in verse 2 again. But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. The heir is bound by the rules of the guardian, like the person that is bound under the law. Paul, throughout this whole book, he's been trying to make this contrast between going back to the law, the things of the old, and being free in Christ. He's, they, people are bound under the law until the time. Why are they bound under the law? Because they weren't ready yet. They weren't ready yet. You can picture in your mind, you can see, you know, imagine a child trying to run a major corporation or something. It just doesn't make sense, right? They're not ready yet. 
They can't make the mature decisions needed to carry on what their father has built. We see this legacy built up. And we can see it being destroyed very quickly, can't we? We picture this child trying to run this operation by himself. He needs help. Otherwise, he could waste the whole inheritance very quickly. So the guardian guides and teaches until the time is right. And that's how the law was to function as a guardian, as a schoolmaster. But the expiration date of the law's rule was met at the coming of Christ. So here, here's the law all these years, all these years. Finally, the coming of Christ, and now the law is set to expire. Because Christ fulfills the law. Look in verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. That expression, elements of the world, or elemental spiritual forces in the NIV uh, of the world, describe the state before Christ came. Rudimentary things, the building blocks, talking about the law, or perhaps the false or worldly religious teachings like the Jesus Plus movement. Yeah, we've got Jesus, but we've got all these traditions we've got to do too. Jesus Plus. Luther said, Paul means to sum up that the law is something material, mundane, earthly, that may restrain evil, but it does not deliver us from sin. He goes on to say that the law holds a mirror to the evil which is in the world. By revealing the evil that is in us, it creates a longing in the heart for the better things of God. Remember in the book of James, it talks about how it's like looking at your face in a mirror and beholding what's going on. You see the real thing. It's like the, the, the law shows us the things about ourselves. And you know, when we get in that quiet time and we, we're praying before God and, you know, we're really looking into our hearts, how many times do we see, you know, I'm really not right. Something's really not right here. I'm not thinking about this right. I'm not, I don't have the right attitude about this. And it changes the way you want. It creates a longing in your heart for the better things of God. We can say that without God's standards, we would have no other basis for judging right and wrong, wouldn't we? Hmm. We're talking about morality. We, we went through some things about that. And, and without the standard of God's word being what is right and what is wrong, everything else is just subjective opinion. There's nothing else to base it upon. Don't do that. Well, why not? Why not? That's just your opinion. But if the word is the objective opinion, it says what to do, then you know what to do. So at best, the law serves as a temporary restraint but it doesn't solve the problem of sin. It's like putting a muzzle on a rabid dog. It temporarily solves the problem, right? But it does nothing about the source of the real problem. People needing to live up to the law. The phrase here again, elements of the world, is also used in Colossians chapter 2 when it speaks against the worldly Gnostic theology and the human regulations that were trying to slip into the Colossian churches. So we see these rudimental things, these basic things, the philosophy of all mankind. Throughout all history and even to this day, human thinking cannot get away from this obsession of earning your way into heaven in this case. We can't get rid of that. And when you think about it, that's really just another variation of the sin of pride, isn't it? The obsession of being in control of every aspect of your life. 
in this case, being in control of what happens at your death. It's pride. It's pride. We've got to control it. We've got to know what's going on. I've got a hand in this. I've done all these good things. I've got a hand in this. But it's not us. We make ourselves prisoners to our own expectations. It's another form of being a prisoner to sin. Let's look at the next couple of verses. Verse 4 and verse 5. 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the time was right, in the fullness of time. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes this. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We can see that God had a plan for sinners, a redemptive plan that he had all figured out already. All the right pieces were in place to be executed at just the right time. God's timing is often our biggest problem. God's timing is often our biggest problem. When, Lord, when is this going to happen? I've been praying for so long. When is this going to happen? It's like the guy who wrote the book, How to Get Patience in Ten Easy Steps. But I did it in seven. (laughs) But we have to remember something. Our Father is detached from time and space. He's detached from time and space. He doesn't go by our timetable. He's got his own. How often do we hear the quote from Second Peter which says, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But what does that really mean? Some people try to go and count each day and say, okay, that's a thousand years with God. That was a thousand days. This is two thousand years with God because that was two thousand days. And they try to use that to figure things out. But the verse is really trying to explain that God has his own timing. He's not bound by our simplistic system of counting days and nights, sunrises and sunsets. He's not even bound by our limited lifetimes on this planet. And that's a tough one for us to get a hold of. He's not even bound by our limited lifetimes on this planet. Sometimes the things that we're working so hard for, the things that we're striving for, trying to get accomplished, even good things, good things for God, may not accomplish in our lifetime. It may be later on down the road. That's a tough thing for us to swallow. He's not limited by our limited lifetimes on this planet. He's much bigger than that. He's dealing with eternity's timetable. So a thousand years, that's just like a day to him. It's like nothing. God knew when the right time was to send his son. Why was it then? Now, why was that time the right time? And we really don't exactly know. But somehow the atmosphere was right. It was conducive to spreading the gospel. Now, maybe it was um, you know, the, the oppressive Roman rule. The people were ready or hungry for something new. The spiritual openness that the people had and the longing for God to rescue them. Maybe those were the reasons. But for whatever reason, that was the time It was right. It was the perfect time. It says here that Jesus was born of a woman under the law. 
We sometimes forget that Christ was human. Sometimes we do. He was God. He was God in the flesh, and we know that. But we sometimes forget that he was human. You know, I was thinking the other day, I was cutting the grass, I'm walking around, I'm just mowing these things around in my head. And um, thinking about how the narrative of Jesus' life, and then all of a sudden it doesn't talk about Joseph anymore. And the assumption is always that maybe, you know, Joseph passed away. Jesus' father died, you know, when Jesus was a young man and so forth. And he's not mentioned anymore, so that's the assumption that maybe he died. And I just started thinking about that. Jesus' father died? Why didn't he go and pray for him and raise him up or whatever? But he was human. He was human and he was living in a human time and, and people die. It's just what happens. People live and people die. That's a normal thing. Jesus was human. This very human thing happened to him. And the grieving and everything else that he went through, that everybody else goes through, happened to him. Born of a woman, under the law. As a Jew, Jesus was born under the law and was obligated to fulfill its requirements during his life on earth. And he's the only one that did it, isn't he? Verse 5, look at that again. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. To redeem those under the law because he was fulfilling the law with his sinless life. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He gave it its full meaning. meaning. He emphasized the total commitment to it. Rather than just a knowledge of it, a total commitment to it. And he is the only one who lived a sinless life. Why? So that we might receive the adoption of sonship. Wow. Now we see more about that heritage of Abraham that the other chapters were talking about. The Gentiles are grafted into the heritage and the family of God. It was a relevant example to them in those days because they were very well aware of the adoption process. Adoption was common among the Greeks and the Romans and they granted adopted sons all the privileges of a natural son, including the inherited rights. That was a big thing. Somebody adopts somebody into the family, somebody has already natural children. Yeah, they're treating them nice, they're taking good care of them, but not only that, they get the inheritance that the natural children would get, so did the adopted children. As Christians, we've been adopted by sons of grace. Look at verse 6. Let's read 6 and 7 now. And because you are sons, God has set, sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So you are now his children. This is a critical and monumental statement to them and to us as well. We tend to get used to hearing it after all these years over and over again. Yeah, we've been grafted into the family. We're adopted into his family. But this is a crucial and monumental statement. Adopted into God's family. This is huge. 
The Jews at that time didn't even have anything close to a relationship like that with God. They were afraid from, they even refrained from trying to speak his name because they were afraid of mispronouncing his name. Here now you have this close adopted relationship whereby your heart cries out, Abba Father. This is huge to them. Now the Holy Spirit is sent into their hearts and develops this close bonding relationship with God the Father himself. So God not only sent his Son, but he also sent the Spirit of his Son, or the Holy Spirit. And it's that presence of the Holy Spirit which legitimizes the identity of children of God. That's how we know each other. By the presence of the Holy Spirit in our conversations, in our actions, in our ways of life. Look at verse 7 again. Wherefore you are no more a servant or a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The relationship has changed. We're no longer outsiders, slaves who don't know what the master is up to. This reminds us of another thing that Jesus said in John chapter 15, remember? He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father I have made known unto you. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer servants. You're no longer strangers or, or not part of the family. Now you are part. You're on the inside. You are no longer outsiders but children of God, and not just children of just anybody, which would be great enough under certain circumstances, but a child of God, made an heir of God, with access to all his redemptive plans. So we see this lineage, right? We see right from the beginning, God promised that someday that good, or Jesus, would crush evil, right? He would crush the serpent's head, sir, Crush evil and, and rescue humanity. That was Jesus' role, right? He had this promise at the very beginning in Genesis. Then God initiates this, this covenant with Abraham based on Abraham's trust or faith in God. It was counted to him as righteousness. That was his promise. Then, through the promise to Abraham that he would multiply, have this land that he would multiply, comes Israel. And from Israel comes the seed, right? Remember we talked about that in the previous chapters. The seed, which was Christ, right? So here comes Christ. And now through Christ, the entire human population can be offered entrance into God's kingdom through justification in Christ. So we see this whole plan. First the promise. Then he has his covenant with Abraham. Then we see Israel being birthed out of that. After Israel, we see Jesus coming out of Israel. And then the law is no more. Jesus is the one. And then through Christ, all can come into the redemptive plan of the Father. It all fits together. It's an amazing thing. We could spend our life in training. Or, or as the beginning of this chapter said, you know, we, we are heirs as long as he is a child. He differs nothing from a servant. We can spend our life in training like Samuel did. Training all those years before being recognized as a true prophet of God. An heir before his time comes is no better off than a slave. So before Christ came, people were enslaved to the law. The law served as a teacher. It made people realize all the things they do wrong. 
the Lord reveals to man his sinfulness, his blindness, his misery, and his contempt with God. The law makes people realize that they can't live up to it and therefore need a Savior. We see God talking about timing, the right timing. Like in Romans, it said just at the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We can see that God had a plan for sinners. A redemption plan that he had all figured out. All the right pieces were in place. And he executed it at just the right time. Don't let God's timing be our problem. Don't let his timing be our problem. God uses his own timing. He's not bound by our simplistic system. Of counting days and nights, sunrises and sunsets. And he's not even bound, remember, by our limited lifetime on this planet. He's much bigger than that. He's dealing with eternity's timetable. And he knew the right time to send his son. For the law to expire. For the law to expire. For Christ to come and to fulfill that law. So we could be made into children. Made into children. Adopted children into the family of God. The relationship changed. We're no longer outsiders and slaves that don't know what the master is doing, but children of Almighty God. Not just merely children of anybody, but of God himself and made an heir of God with access to all the plan of redemption. So we see in this section, this little section that we read today, that Paul draws a contrast between children and slaves. He tries to help the Galatians understand that reliance on the law is not a sign of maturity, but rather immaturity. That you're going backwards. In contrast, the law of faith, faith in Christ, produces children who become heirs of God's promises. And thereby you and I become adopted into the very family of God. You see that? What a plan he had for us. It's amazing. Amen.